The question had been asked, why out of the hundred or so churches that were there by the year 96 AD, where the book of Revelation was written, uh, why only Jesus speaks to those seven churches? And through the years, there are all kinds of answers, and all kinds of people have opinions about it. There are some who've said Jesus only speaking to those seven churches and only the seven churches, and the message has no relevance to us. But the problem is this is negate the double blessing that comes from reading and heeding the book of Revelation. Then some people actually believe, and these great theologians, people that you and I would love and respect, and they said that the history of the church is divided into seven sections— And the way it's divided now, according to them, we are in the time of the seventh church, which is the church of Laodicea, which was lukewarm and Jesus about to spit it out of his mouth. Now, the truth is the Word of God is rich enough and filled with many layers of meanings. And therefore, I believe that these seven letters could be called the bifocal. A bifocal show you distance but also close up. And these seven churches are representative of all the churches of Jesus Christ throughout the ages and through the history. Uh, Most of us probably been in churches like one of those described here. These seven churches, or these seven messages to the seven churches were written in the first century, but they are also written to the 21st century. Amen? In every age and in every part of the world, The church of Jesus Christ needs a message of conviction, and it needs a message of admonition, and it needs a message of exhortation, and yes, it needs a message of invitation that they might come back to the Lord. Now, there are many Christians and Christian pastors skip the seven churches. They really do. And they like to get to the what I call the fireworks, (laughs) where the stars are falling and the moon turning into blood and so forth. Well, we're going to get to the fireworks, trust me. But if you jump these messages and go to the fireworks, you miss out on ordering our lives today in the light of the life to come. And as you read Jesus' seven letters, you cannot help but see that they are representative of the churches today. Let's look at those very quickly, all seven of them. The first message is to the church of Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Ephesus was a great ancient city, really was, was among the, the important cities of the world. Ephesus was the center of wealth and commerce. Ephesus uh, had a population of well over 200,000 people, and that was big city by those days' standards. Uh, Ephesus boasted of having the temple of Diana of Artemis. In fact, Diana's temple was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. The Apostle Paul founded the church in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, he spent more time in Ephesus than any other of the churches he founded. He was there for a solid three years teaching. And John, the Apostle John, who lived much longer, over 30 years past Paul, he became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And that's where he lived The Ephesian church was a home ministry not only to Paul, but also Apollos and Timothy and Achilla and Priscilla. And Jesus begins his message to the Ephesian Christians 
by a word of commendation. What I love about the Lord is He finds something positive to say, and He says it first. But when He doesn't, He does not just make them feel good. (laughs) You'll see in some of the other messages, He had nothing good to say. So He starts by saying, I know your deeds. Beloved, listen. If I give you the description of those Christians, they were hardworking Christians. They've rejected false doctrine. They believed in accurate biblical interpretation. They were biblically sound. Uh, They believed the right doctrine. And they've rejected the work of a heretic by the name of Nicholas, which Jesus hated, that heresy. That impacted the other churches, and other churches embraced it, but not the church in Ephesus. They rejected it. Uh, These people rejected that false heresy. The early Christian father, Irenaeus, tells us what Nicholas and Nicolaitans is all about. Irenaeus, the early Christian father, said that Nicholas taught that sexual sins would not affect your salvation, that sexual immorality does not affect your spiritual life. There were others uh, in other churches who fell line, hook, and sinker for that heresy, but not the church of Ephesus. They rejected it. And so you say, what a wonderful church. But what else Jesus expect from them? How can you get any better than this? Well, and yet there was one rebuke. Listen very carefully, please. This is a relevant message for us. We are people who believe the Scripture, accurate interpretation. We have rejected falsehood. We, we stand tall for the truth. Every one of us probably would say amen to that. But the problem with the church in Ephesus is that they loved their accurate biblical interpretations more than they loved Jesus. They have fallen in love with their good works, and they come out of love for Jesus. Now, you know Christians like that. Outwardly, they go through all the motions. Outwardly, they do all the right things. But they have a heart problem. They have a heart problem. And I'm not talking about the problem they need a cardiologist for, but it's a heart problem. They do the right things, not out of love for Jesus, but because they are trained to do the right things. Let me tell you what the great physician concerned about this heart condition. He's saying if you do the right thing and believe the right thing out of duty, not out of love for Jesus, sooner or later... You're going through the motions, Bible study, the home groups, the church, and singing. You go through the motions. If your love for Jesus is cold, sooner or later your affection are going to be placed on somebody else or on something else. And there are five possibilities will take place if you walk the Christian life and you're not passionately in love with Jesus. First is a compromise. You will begin to put one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Then there is complacency. Well, Jesus forgave my sins. I'm eternally saved. I can sin. I can live whichever way I want to live. Then there's coldness. God did not answer my prayer. The wanted answered. And you develop this cold love toward the Lord. There's complaining. And you think that God is not fair. How come after all you've done for him that you are really going through this valley? Or then you begin to crave the world, which is the fifth possibility. You crave success more than you crave Jesus. You crave wealth more than you crave Jesus. You crave power or luxury or whatever it is that your Achilles heals more than you love 
Jesus more than you crave for Jesus. And so the great physician's prescription to the Ephesians, he said, retrace your steps. Get back a little bit. Find out where you lost your first love. What is the thing that tricked you? What is the thing that tripped you? Find out what went wrong and where. Where you have fallen out of love for Jesus. What is the thing that got you to come out of love for Jesus? What made your white-hot love for Jesus become amber? Who replaced Jesus as the object of your affection? And he said, not only confess it, but turn away from it. Now, beloved, listen to me very carefully, please. If you do not act soon, and if you do not act decisively, Jesus said he will remove the lampstand. He's not talking about salvation, but he will remove the lampstand. He will snuff out the light of your witness. The light will no longer shine, even if you are going through the motions. Whatever passion you've got left for sharing Christ with others will die down. Let me plead with you. Let me plead with you. If you have lost your first love, and I know what I'm talking about. A few decades ago, I lost my first love. I went through the motions until God's grace got me to repent. I plead with you, repent now. Repent today. Don't force God's hand to remove your lampstand. Don't force God's hand to extinguish your light. Don't force God's hand to dissolve your effectiveness for Him. Love Jesus more than anything in life. Love Jesus more than loving the applause of men. Love Jesus more than loving your opinion and your ideas and what you like and what you don't like. Love Jesus even more than loving the ministry. I have known people in ministry, they're more in love with ministry than they are in love with Jesus. I also know what that's like. For when you do that, Jesus will grant you to eat from the tree of life. He will reward you, and He will reward your faithful love for Him in ways you will not be able to comprehend. The second message is to the believers in Smyrna. That's chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Jesus gives them only encouragement, no condemnation, not one single negative word. Smyrna was the home of the shrine of Caesar. Smyrna's population stood before the statue of Caesar, and they bowed to Caesar. The population worshipped Caesar, but the believers in Smyrna refused to bow to Caesar. The Christians in Smyrna said, only Jesus we worship. Only Jesus is Lord. The Christians in Smyrna said, only Jesus is to be obeyed above Caesar. And the Christians in Smyrna said, no, Lord, but Jesus, because they were in love with Jesus. The word Smyrna is a Greek word which actually means myrrh. Myrrh, is, you remember when the wise men came to the baby Jesus and they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's a reason for that. In ancient times, Smyrna was the myrrh capital of the world. They sold it all over the globe. Myrrh is a fragrance that comes from 
breaking and crushing a thorn tree or a thorn bush for the fragrance of the myrrh to be released. It has to be broken. It has to be crushed. And when the wise men gave Jesus myrrh, it is because he was going to be crushed for our sin. And that is the only way the fragrance of God's forgiveness is released. Jesus' message to the church that has been crushed by persecution, that has been crushed for his sake. He said, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. God knows your suffering for him. God knows your sacrifices that you are making for him. And none of them is forgotten. None of them are overlooked. And God is the one who will reward you for your joyful endurance of that suffering. Jesus said to them, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Beloved, God has a word for the persecuted church. God has a word for the persecuted believers. And let me tell you, God's word to the persecuted believer today is this, don't be afraid. You have it tough now. You have it difficult now. But the day of your glorification is coming. The third letter is to the church of Pergamum. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. The population of Pergamum was awash with strange religious practices. I mean, they were worshiping serpents in Pergamum. They were worshiping all kinds of strange idols. And Jesus said to them, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. What is Jesus talking about? Pergamum had the great altar dedicated to Zeus. And Zeus is the chief deity of the Greek Parthenon. And Jesus referring to that altar of Zeus when he was talking about Satan's throne. And so Jesus gives him a word of commendation. He said, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith altogether in me. Oh, but Jesus immediately goes in with a word of condemnation because they had one big, humongous sin that is creeping among them. You have people there in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Balaam was a fortune teller. And so, before the people of God got into the promised land, a pagan king brought him in, and he said, Now, Balaam, I want you to curse these people. And here is a bucket full of cash. I mean, he looks at that cash, and he couldn't wait to go and curse God's people. There's a problem. While he got Satan on his side, the Israelites had Yahweh on their side. <laughs> Don't ever underestimate Yahweh. Things might look dark, but it's not going to be as dark forever. And so, every time he tries to open his mouth to curse Israel, he blesses them. And the pagan king was frustrated. So he piles more cash and more cash. And Balaam sees the cash. He so let me try again. He will try again. And every time I open his mouth to curse the people of God, he blesses them. And finally, he came up with a devilish idea. He couldn't curse the people of God, but he can get the people of God to curse themselves. Because that's his devilish attack. 
If he cannot get you straight ahead, he will work on your flesh to get you to cause yourself a curse. Balaam was so blind, he couldn't see it. So much so that his donkey saw the angel, but he didn't. And the donkey rebuked him. Be careful when a donkey speaks to you. (laughs) And so he goes to this pagan king. He said, you know, I can get these people cursed themselves. Bring me out all you loose women. Just bring them out. And as soon as these Israelites men see your loose women, they're going to fall. And they did. And Satan says, mission accomplished. He succeeded, just like he is succeeding today when trying to get so many of God's people hooked on pornography, on infidelity to their marriage vows, homosexuality, and sexual perversions of all kinds. And then there are some preachers somewhere say, well, you know, just well, you have needs. This is just the way you are. I mean, you can't help it. Well, these are the, the way things are today. It's okay. Hey, don't be narrow-minded. Surely don't be a prude. That's the situation in their church. Now, here's something many Christians in the 21st century have in common with the church, with the Christians in Pergamum. They were approval junkies. Many churches today, the approval junkies. They crave the approval of their pagan neighbors more than the approval of Jesus. Today, the cry of many a church in the evangelical arena is that in order to bring sinners inside the church, we have to accept and approve of their sin. Now, beloved, let me shoot straight with you. We are under obligation to love non-believers. We have no choice. We have no option but to love the non-believer to minister to nobody, to be available in every way. And I do that personally, as some of you know. We are under obligation to love sinners. We are under obligation in every way to be Christ to these people. But never, 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 never at the expense of biblical truth. Never under the compulsion of having them join a church without repentance and without salvation. And that is why Jesus said to the church at Pergamum, Repent. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. Remember in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the true manna that comes from heaven. He's going to have nothing less than Jesus himself. So what is that white stone? You see, in the Roman judicial system, they did not have a trial by jury. The judge tries, adjudicates, and and pronounce judgment all at the same time. So the judge was so powerful. And if the man being tried is guilty, he hands him a black stone. But if he is innocent or guiltless, he hands him a white stone. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. When we seek to please Him and Him alone, He will declare us innocent and set us free. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.